Hello and welcome to the Hacking State podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Dr. Matthew Meehan. Dr. Meehan is the Associate Dean and Assistant Professor of Government for Hillsdale College's Steve and Amy Van Andel's Graduate School of Government on their DC campus at the Kirby Center, as well as the author of two children's books, The Handsome Little Signet and uh, Mr. Man's Mildly Amusing Mythical Mammals. Dr. Meehan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex, for having me. Thank you for uh, for coming on. So I, I wanted to talk to you today. I mean, first of all, a little bit of background on um, my introduction to you. We spoke a little bit before the show started, but I also went ahead and purchased one of your children's books um, for one of my little brothers. I have um, many siblings, and uh, one of them is, is quite young. And uh, I bought, I believe it was Mr. Meehan's um, uh, mildly amusing mythical mammals um, back for uh, for Christmas one year for my little brother. And the reason for that uh, purchase is I found it um, interesting that there was a children's book that's available that seemed to embody the kind of like classical values of a children's book in that it had um, it had it well, it had poetry. It also involved um, very like elegant and beautiful paintings. And it also had, you know, it addressed sort of core values that are important in the rearing of children that a lot of children's books these days either don't address or they address it in some very superficial way. Like, you know, it's, it's all about the meaning of friendship or something like that, uh, which is not trivial. But um, I found that a lot of the books that are available on the market are sort of lacking a kind of substantive core or they've been politicized in some way. And so I just wanted to get started with that and ask you what what motivated you to first writing start writing children's books. Um, I I was practicing all of my writing in a kind of homage to great uh, statesmen and leaders who always sort of made sure that their pen was strong for whatever occasion was required. Just rhetoric being, you know, the art of persuasion in a peaceful milieu uh right but something more than just the plain facts that don't move anyone um so i was practicing my writing and i was doing some aesopic children's poems but to be perfectly honest the reason i chose that genre which kicked off the the seed for me and mammals um which are these sort of aesopic but sort of much more whimsical bestiary of poems going through the alphabet was the end of Plato's Phaedo, where uh, he's stuck in prison for a few weeks, um, waiting for the Delian, um, or no, what is it, the um, uh, the embassy to Crete to come back, I believe. Uh, and so there's no there's no executions allowed. So his execution is stayed out of sort of piety. Um, and uh, the whole time he's writing aesop's fables but putting them into verse into the song which i found a very curious thing why would socrates's last exercises before his his death be poetic representations of moral truths i mean i think in part it's the understanding that right the way in which you bring philosophy into the city the way you bring truth to your fellow man is very often through Right, some kind of rhetorical strategy, some kind of beautiful image, and I think poetry is one of those incredible things that is undervalued in our day. And uh, people who actually care about capital T truth, real truths, mm. um, don't often do this work. But so I was kind of just moved, like, well, I don't see anyone else doing this. It was good enough for Socrates; it's good enough for me. Uh, and so that's how me and mammals uh, began. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting that uh, you, you saw poetry as a way to sort of bring philosophy into the city. Um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you'd be more familiar with this side of things than someone like myself. My background is more in political theory directly. And um, I mean, I did do sort of a focus in English of sorts, but it, in my particular university education, it wasn't very well integrated. And so the two sides were not very, were not, were, well, very often not speaking to one another. I mean, there was a little bit of poetry or epic covered in our um, core curricula, but 
the English classes I was taking were totally unrelated. Um, so I wanted to ask you, like, what is the like relationship of poetry to philosophy historically? Because they're sort of seen as um, separate realms. I mean, look, you've got the famous feud with uh, in, in Plato's Republic, Socrates and Homer. Um, but in one sense, that feud is, I think, in a certain sense, apparetic or uh, a display to sort of force young people who prefer the pleasure of images to engage in the hard work of clarifying the principles uh, that accompany or undergird those images. And so Homer needs to be purified, corrected, cleansed, judged, right? You need a sort of critical apparatus. But you notice Socrates winds up making a host of references by heart to Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey and he knows his poetry very well and uh, in fact a lot of the arguments in Plato's Republic you can find were taken from the Homeric epics right but they're embedded very sort of cleverly and only the sharpest readers will track them so I tend to think that the relationship between them is uh, in a certain sense, um, very close in that they're both means of pursuing truth uh, and and the good and being. Um, and but but the one uh, is basically because it's an image, it's much more subject to error and misinterpretation. Uh, and the other, because of its difficulty and exactitude, is much less likely to be practiced by the many. Mm. Uh, and so you get a kind of uh, complex choriambic dance between uh, uh, logic and rhetoric, philosophy and poetry, the appeal to the heart, which does connect to the head in many subtle ways, and the appeal to the head itself. Um, and, and, and since we are a composite being um, and we have many parts and we have both passions and reason, and a will to adjudicate these matters, it winds up being uh, a very delicate and complex relationship. Yeah. And there's a lot of subtlety there, I guess, um, working out, you know, the differences in human experience and how we make sense of the world and then how we choose to act in terms of our, um, our discernment of what we, what we perceive and what we can make sense of. Um, I think discernment, and, and and feel free to push back on this um, or interpret it however you'd like, but I, I think that discernment is increasingly becoming um, more important as our society gets sort of mediated more thoroughly in every way by, by technology. Uh, this is sort of one of the themes of the show and also just a personal interest of mine as someone who um, I guess now is, uh, working in tech, uh, you know, I'm a software developer, but I have this sort of humanist background. And one of the things that's occurring to me as more and more of our lives are taken over by this, um, by this technology that's been enabled through, through science and through engineering is that, um, our capacities have been increased dramatically um, our, our powers to manage nature and manage each other. Um, but there doesn't seem to me to be enough focus on um, the training of our discernment, um, which to me would seem to be the, the most important thing, given that our power is increasing. How do you think about the relationship of, um, I guess, the increase of our technological prowess and its relationship to, to discernment? Um, I think a well-examined life is perhaps one of the better ways to approach increasing our capacity for discernment. And I believe that it's not enough to be technically powerful alone. You also have to have that um, judgment. Yeah, I mean, discernment, judgment, prudence. Uh, a good mother wit, as Chaucer put it, right? Like, without which all other learning is half lame, as the statement continues. Uh, you, you have to have that. Um, 
Look, yeah. I mean, there's a number of ways to take that question. I'd, I'd say one of them is there's little doubt in my mind that that moral philosophy, moral training has been evacuated from Western culture, Western education in a very powerful way, starting in the beginning of the 20th century. And it's only now that people are just starting to wake up generally as to the results of such a horrific vacuity. Uh, and people are sort of scrambling to find something to replace what has sort of like a zombie fever replaced the husk of education with a new soul of false virtue, which oftentimes gets referred to as woke or whatever, right? There's all kinds of ways of talking about it, ideological possession, et cetera. Um, mm. Why that is, is a long story. Um, but but I do think it's 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 just the case. I, I even amongst very serious educators that wanted to educate people morally, there was a debate going on in the 90s about, well, how do you bring the virtues to children, right? How do you educate for virtue so that people can be more discerning and more prudent and actually live well? And the answer was just give them just a sense of goodness and a few like, uh, you know, sort of, you know, high high order elements like magnanimity and generosity. Just teach them that and then the rest will all follow. Well, it turns out that's ridiculous <laughs> and no one has ever successfully uh, right, trained oneself in virtue without being able to name, identify, define, and set up with powerful imaginary or real examples of the various virtues that one might need to be fully human, right? This is humanitas, humanism, the good kind, right? Like, mm. So just just that debate, which I think basically closed in the 20 teens, uh, where, no, no, that's ridiculous. You actually need to teach people virtue through good story, good image, good discipline, good history, good ethics, good philosophy. Um, th because the, the penchant, the desire to sort of call a truce uh, on the grounds of, look, let's just teach them reading, writing, and arithmetic. The problem, as I like to pat about the United States clamoring uh, and repeating myself, uh, is they have to write something, they have to read something, and they have to count something, right? And those some things are going to have actual heft and content. So what are you going to teach them? Uh, and and there you have to ask a question about human nature and what is human flourishing and what leads people to happiness and what is virtue and excellence and all those questions come flowing right back in the back door. That's one way you could go with that answer. The other one with regard to tech, since this mm. is you know your, your podcast and not not a, a liberal arts or classical classroom. Uh, the um, uh, I, part of the danger I see right now is something I refer to as the tyranny of velocity is all of this power that technology has given us. And it is formidable. Uh, all of this power has, to my mind, increased the speed uh, with which you can accomplish tasks. And th that speed is to a certain degree approaching a level uh, that's beyond human powers of discernment. Right? <laughs> AI is in a certain sense a kind of like perfect example of this. We're going to do mm -hmm. things that are way faster than any human could ever get them done. Right? Because if you asked any human being, hey, write me code for this or write me uh, an email that does this or write me a bedtime story with these five parameters... Mm -hmm. A lot of, not everyone, but a lot of educated people could do it. It would just take them longer, right? They would just have to research and think and work. And obviously, I don't think the AI can do a lot of these things as well uh, for reasons we can discuss too. But nevertheless, the speed does actually, in a certain sense, rob people of the, the proper reflective time to deliberate and consider what is best. Uh, and I do think that's something we have to attend to, whether it takes the shape of kind of selective Ludditism or uh, or the shape of both selective Ludditism and a certain kind of humanism in programming. I'll leave that part department to you. But, um, you know, that's that's something I think we just need to to bear in mind. So in that sense, I'm I'm in vociferous agreement with your concern about 
the need for more discernment, not less in the, the, the technological computing age. Yeah. I mean, this, uh, this term velocity of, uh, is it tyranny of velocity? Um, I wrote it down because, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if it's, it's, if, if you coined it, but, um, it sounds like, uh, something that, yeah, well, it, that's good. Um, I'll give you uh due credit, but, uh, I, th I think it's, it's something Rarely that, um, I, coin anything. <laughs> uh, there is a way in which, yeah, things can move much faster than a human time scale, um, is, is adequate for like, for just like processing and and comprehending right the changes move so quickly and there's also this issue of yeah I, I think the the inability or the people's perception of themselves as too busy to do any kind of meaningful reflection is another part of it that's sort of generally part of like the pace of life or a certain kind of life that many of us are um are committed to at this point you know it reminds me of um I read this book, uh, Deep Work, by Cal Newport, who's a sure. computer science professor, MIT. And, you know, the guy is uh, obviously working on very high level um, computer science problems all day long in his day work. And he has a rule for himself, which is, and he recommends this in the book, um, which is basically after he gets out of work and walks home, there's no Internet. Like there's a, it's a complete um blockout of um of of the internet and even using a computer uh of any kind after hours and you might think well for a computer science professor how could you and the thing is like for him it was about creating a separation in his brain between here's the time when i'm using the internet and here's the time when i'm not and most of us don't have that at all it's a completely permeable barrier um and there's no uh there's no containerization there's no real space where you're separated at all from um, this stuff that's just connecting you to the whole world all the time. Um, and right. so, and so you find people, you find people making a lot of what look like arbitrary inconveniences for themselves mm -hmm. uh, in order to try to sort of roadblock the, the permeable state, but go on, please. Oh no. So, so I was going to say though, um, that's like, just a a stellar example of of somebody who's like taking the time to assess okay how how is this actually affecting me how's this affecting my relationship to the other people around me how am i acting just in everyday life um i think people are generally getting better at not using their phones at dinner <laughs> um but um there is a way in which you know we can reclaim some of our own agency and use our own ability to sort of step away from it as a kind of like taking the power back, you know, these machines are here to serve you. Um, you're not supposed to be serving them. So um, that's just one point on, on the tyranny of velocity. But I also wanted to ask you, because I've tried to focus the last year or so on philosophy of technology. Obviously, there are writers about this throughout human history. One such writer that um, is quite notable um, is uh, Martin Heidegger. And Heidegger wrote a little bit about um, the, you know, the issue of technology itself. And in particular, he wrote about how technology has this kind of, uh, he wouldn't use the term alienation, but essentially he's describing an alienating effect on, um, on human beings and our familiarity with our own nature. Um, and one of the things he says at the end of the question concerning technology, which is sort of his essay on technology, is that he, he quotes Holderlin and he says, um, where the danger grows, so lies the saving power also. Do you think that there's a way in which we could leverage technology to sort of help us return to a more human-centered and human-paced way of life? So I think so, but I don't think it's I don't think it's as 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 kind of um, awesome <laughs> as it's as as one might hope from such a question in that in this sense. Uh, our probably mutual friend James Poulos always talked about how the Internet, uh, the World Wide Web has 
basically created a kind of medieval encyclopedic sort of Isidore of Seville like um, uh, milieu where you gather everything together to remember now sort of memory has yes in one sense it's been offshored to the internet like ask google but in another sense um and i'm not i'm speaking for myself i don't know if james would agree with everything i'm saying now but but in another sense um there's there's the ability to recall all of these ancient things with a finger swipe right you can you can find these 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 things i think actually there's something like that happening i mean you mentioned very kindly. I'm glad you bought the book for your for your little your little brother. Um, Means Mammals has this huge glossary in the back. That mm. glossary would have taken me 15 years to write. Like it's really cool. There's all these different things floating around in there. It's its own kind of uh, literary performance. Just the glossary. It's not just a glossary. But that the ability to find what I needed. From everyone from Isidore of Seville to Sam Johnson to Ben Johnson to to um, you know Diogenes Laertius to Shepherd's Calendar of Spencer, the ability to just pull all these things together uh, and find mm-hmm. parallels and find conversations and then put them before you for your formation in the liberal arts and and sort of human wisdom, like that's totally the product of the interwebs. It just is, um, you know. I, I, I mean, I could, I, I did a lot of book learning that really wasn't on the internet, and so that was obviously the sort of hardware. But the software was software. I, I used the internet to collate all these things and, and write a really great book that reminds everyone of the tradition. So I think there are things like that happening, um, but that's not necessarily like I've invented some. AI Jarvis that's going to like police the internet. It's it's it seems to my mind just the response out offered as an anecdote sounds almost like charmingly homey and less kind of uh Deus Ex Machina, you know, sort of uh in the way your questions seem to promise from Heidegger. Uh, I don't know if that that's useful an answer, but well, well, maybe. I mean, uh, I, I, I'm not really sure. Uh, I mean, Heidegger's like he leaves the essay it, it kind of ambiguous what what exactly his final conclusion is. Um, the way right. that I interpreted it, interpreted it at the time um, after reading it a few times was basically that there's a chance that we could just rediscover our human nature um, by sort of just, I don't know, gr- grinding through the continual like revealing of technology you know um but uh i am not sure if i'm ready to to go fully into um the question concerning technology right now um i just wanted to to mention that to see what you thought about the potential for its redemptive qualities um, yeah i'm 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 the ge- the general answer beyond what i just offered mm-hmm. um with regard to memory um to my mind, the, the the general answer is I find there is a certain imprudence in the hope that as evil heightens, good will sort of present itself. It's sort of similar, and I hear that language a lot, it's sort of similar to like, gosh, there's going to be a backlash soon. Right, right. right. Like, One no, of these you're, days. <laughs> you're the backlash, right? So what are you going to do? Like, human prudence with regard to every particular technological advancement or or technological invasion of your life or home you know like it just requires human prudence like you've just got like you're back to discernment you've just got to be discerning because sometimes it's just evil and it's just bad and you have to say no and other times it has a good but it has a downside and then you have to find the hack for it or maybe there isn't one for now and but it's tolerable as you you know like there's just no there's no getting around prudence and there's almost something Kantian in the formula of like see it's all going to ba- balance out like a math problem right like if you heighten this power you'll have these powers like I don't know like you can like civilizations end you know like cities fall right like there is tragedy right? like it's not all technology can't be it just cannot be simply comic 
right? Where there's mm -hmm. misunderstandings and problems, but it always ends in a wedding and not a death, right? Like I just like, that's, that's not true. That's not true to life because we're involved with tech. So given that the, um, you know, the people of the future are going to be those uh, tautologically who are around for it. Um, it seems to me like the rearing of children is sort of one of the core issues of how you um, how you begin to shape some vision of the future that you would find suitable. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit. I know that you have many children and of course, you're a very successful children's author. Um, so I'm sure you've thought about these questions a lot. How do you think about the balance between exposure and discretion when considering children's participation in technology, the internet, social media, more specifically? Um, yeah. Is there a way you try to strike a balance between giving them familiarity with that world while also reminding them of their the fact that they're not, um, they don't want to entirely be creatures of it? Yeah, I mean, so the balance to my mind seems to me to be uh, making sure that the the natural and normal rhythms of child formation are not disrupted. And that's, you know, once it's like, okay, you know, it's like Steve Martin's old joke, how to uh, make a million dollars tax free in 10 easy steps. Step one, get a million dollars, right? It's like, <laughs> that's the whole show. And once it's, but, but if you think of like the normal route, a child until what, maybe 15 or 16, uh, maybe in a more complicated era, 18 or 20, but, but basically is under the direct guidance and care of their parents and then are entrusted to particular people, right? Or institutions that are standing in loco parentis, like they're on behalf of the parent for designed specifically for the formation of the child, right? School, coaching, tutoring, parenting. That's basically that's and 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 soul craft like priests, pastors, that kind of thing. That's mm -hmm. it, right? So you introduce with tech other groups <laughs> into the home uh, and into the formation stream. Uh, you gotta you gotta think about whether that's a violation of those norms. And it seems to me when you when you think about different tech and I, I basically i have you know th there's three groups for tech and there and then there's two devices there's the computer and then the handheld device phone and small tablet and then the desktop computer or laptop you know there's sort of hybrid the larger ipad and the laptop are sort of in between but basically those are the two groups right um but but uh uh and but then there's then there's the three categories, which it seems to me to be right, like your peer group, uh social media, and then the internet. <laughs> like like the World Wide Web, a particular social media, and then your peer group. Now your peer group comes in with email, uh it, it can come into social media on closed DMs and group chatting and things like that both on the computer on the phone etc right but but so those are the those those are the sorts of like those are the fields in which you've got to think and then you've got to think about them according to that in loco parentis thing right now the 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 trick is when you get to the the friend pool uh which maybe i can take that up first because it's in one sense more complicated because obviously they need to start they need playmates, they need entertainment, and they need to start learning how to do friendship, right? Mm. But the question is, how much friendship? Do they have access to the child at all times, right? And that seems to me to be quite unnatural that the, that the friend group basically is, is overpowering the parental and the educational in loco parentis authority figures that are helping form the child. And I do think that that's the case when you 
allow too much email, too much group texting, uh, and too much social media where your friends are always on your mind and always in your pocket or always in front of your face. And uh, there's there's sort of a suffocating uh, experience to the point where a lot of people have actually written on this about how uh, parents are a much weaker authority now as our teachers and the peer group has supercharged amounts of power over the concern for what is right and wrong, right? That people will lie to their parents before they'll lie to a friend every time, like in polls, there's lots of kids who answer that now. Like, oh no, I would never lie to my bros, but but my parents, of course, right? Uh, teacher, you bet. Um, that sort of those, those kinds of intimate bonds have flipped. Um, and I think social media and tech has something to do with it. Um, so that has to be minded, right, and and sort of moderated so that it that you actually are continuing to form a child for adulthood in virtue and and skills. Um, and then, uh, um, but then you get to social media and you go, wait a minute, <laughs> does Instagram as an as a company for profit are they there? Is their purpose to form my child for adulthood? Is Instagram in loco parentis? Is Pinterest in loco parentis? Is TikTok in loco parentis in the place of the parent? Mm. Absolutely not. They're just not. Like they're that is not what they're trying to do, even on their best representation of themselves, right? Never mind their worst. They do not say they're doing that. That's not what they're offering. That is not their purpose, right? That's not what their stockholders and shareholders are told that's not what the CEO says to the company employees. That's not their public facing job. So to my mind, you, that alone, just thinking it through rationally, a whole bunch of conclusions follow, which we can talk about, but I think those are just kind of baseline ways to think that through as a, just as a starting point. Mm, okay. So Basically, trying to delimit the the roles of each of these spheres in your children's life, and make them kind of distinctive from the the uh, the forever roles, right? That every parent, every parent, and every child in every society that's ever existed has uh, has had, um, and then you know, just identifying to the to the children and to others around you as well. Um, what the proper role of the, of these things uh, is or, or might be. It does seem to me like these, there, there is a way in which the, some aspects of the company um, at least would like to, would like to try to play that, uh, that role. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking of examples like uh, like YouTube Kids, right? Which is the YouTube, <laughs> the kids version of YouTube that like does the recommendations for children. Um, what's going on there? Well, at the end of the day, they just identified a, a market segment and they figured out that they were going to get blowback if kids were watching videos intended for adults. So they decided to start curating that content for the kids. But um it's not at all intended to be any kind of um, moral training or even socialization for your children. It's some <laughs> right. sort of mindless entertainment product um, that you put in front of a, a whiny six-year-old when they're not behaving at a restaurant. Or at least you, you, maybe you don't, but someone does. Yeah, no, I don't. But 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 uh, do do you um do you remember the Truman Show? The movie, yeah, yeah, the Truman Show when. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jim Carrey is talking with his wife and they're having a heated, like, I'm not happy. And then she suddenly like talks about some spatula and it's clearly one of those advertisements that are laced into their conversation. And he's yeah. like, who are you talking to? Right. Like looking around the room, right. YouTube kids. Yeah. They might curate the content, but could you imagine a teacher or a tutor or a babysitter suddenly like, let me tell you about Mattel's brand new, you know, Robot baby doll, right? Like suddenly advertising to your child, right? right and like right. wetting their appetite for various products and acquisitions without any concern for what the parents want, but actually answering to some other corporate entity, right? The, the, no matter how they kind of style themselves, 
the sheer engine of those the, those things are not in loco parentis. They're not serving the parent. They're not serving the household, right? The, 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 there's a there is a there is a different kind of contractual arrangement going on there, right? That are that's multi-party. They are sort of serving the kids and parents in some way, but they're not actually in loco parentis. They're not acting with the child's best interest in mind on behalf of the parents whose job it is to do that by nature. Right. So that's the problem is, however, I mean, I've seen right now because they're worried about getting banned. I know Instagram is now having all of these really wonderful, like, here's how to use all of our uh, parent screen time temperance widgets. Right there. And they're all running a ton of ads. Like that right now. Yeah, yeah. TikTok's doing it, too. Uh, but, you know, why? Because they realize that they they addicted a bunch of kids and now there's a bunch of mad parents right and so they're you know sort of you know trying to change their tune but the reason why that happens is because they have someone else in mind this is the same just as a forgive me for being somewhat political but i am a government professor and uh this is the fight with the with the um teachers unions right mm -hmm. the union is some other kind of party Right, that is its own entity that is not working for and bonded to and concerned with serving the household for the education of that child. And there's tension between the union and what parents want. That's the whole fight over the COVID shutdowns and why Randy, what's her name, Weingarter, Gardner, or if we can ever the head of the teachers union, I can never say her name right, why she's getting played right now and why she's trying to sort of misrepresent how she was wanted to remain shut down because all the teachers didn't want to take the risk to serve the kids and the union turtled up and fought like heck to keep the schools closed and all the parents desperately wanted teachers to do that private schools that answer directly to parents uh they remained open whereas public schools that answer to unions among other things did not uh and so there's this tension but i think with tech and children there's a similar one I just wanted to ask, now that you brought up the unions, um, what do you think about the problem of the politicization of uh, education more generally? I guess public education specifically, um, because it seems to me like, you know, it's interesting that the left, um, the left wing argument has always been that it's fine for us to politicize education because there is always a political ethos implicit in the education. And um, I think that's fair uh, to an extent, but I think the issue is that the way it's being politicized is very clearly not in the best interest of the social fabric of the society or living up to American ideals or, you know, preparing, uh, never mind preparing children to um, take on the the um, vicissitudes of life. Um, it's very obvious that the way it's being politicized right now is serving uh, some sort of mess of other agendas. Um, and I just wanted to ask you, you know, do you think of education as a um, as an apolitical kind of objective training in in morals or in um socialization or do you think that there's always some sort of implicit um politics in the education of children and if so what what might that uh look like in an ideal situation yeah i guess it just depends on what you mean by politics if you think that that civic life is something that is required of those who are citizens, right? Meaning like if it's something you just have to do because it's the nature of your political community, the nature of your society is that you have certain rights and responsibilities um, like voting and sitting on juries and, and perhaps holding office or at least, right? Holding office holders accountable, et cetera. Um, and we do. We've got a free society, such as it is, with all its, you know, crippled dysfunctions and problems and threats to such. But, but nevertheless, you have them. Um, well, then it's more of like, is that political? Is it, you know, partisan? 
No, it's it's actually a recognition of moral duty. Like you've got some things you got to do. Um, and so you need to be able to do them well. And so then it, you, you're, you're thrown back on the nature of the thing. And you can say, ah, that's political. You, you're making decisions about the nature of things. It's like, well, politics does have to judge the nature of things and set laws and make rules. So I guess in that sense, education is political. Um, but but I think there's a lot of pre-political parts of education. There's a lot of general humane arts and letters, you know, science, things like that, that are that are good simply for everyone, um, regardless of what kind of society they live in. But it seems to me that it would be absolutely, uh, I mean, ridiculous on its face to release a bunch of young 18-year-olds into the world with the right to fight, the right to, uh, or the duty to fight, some of them, the right to vote uh, and sit on juries and contract marriages, hold jobs, right? Do all these important responsible things without basically an eye to some civic education alongside all the rest. Um, so, you know, that requires history, which has a whole bunch of moral decisions embedded in it. Um, but, I, but I guess when you, I'm refusing a, a kind of just like, yep, it's political or no, it's definitely not like, because it's, I don't know. I just civilization is more complicated than that. Right. Like it's, 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 uh, it's a judgment call and it, and too much of it becomes sort of, you know, like, and you see this, like everyone's basically like, ah, oh, you're communists, you're fascist, left versus right. There's too much ideological demands. Like your child must be this way. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So a why don't you tell me activity. exactly what you are? You know, <laughs> I get that a lot. Well, I get people being like, right. Hey, I can't figure out what you are. Can you label yourself, please? I'm like, uh, no. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. <laughs> It's like the old far side. There's a this dude sitting in his front lawn panting with an empty bucket of black paint and a black smeared brush. And all around him is everything's labeled with sloppy black paint, door, house, wife, dog, cat, fence. And then he's just panting. He says, well, that ought to clear a few things up around here. <laughs> like, I just I need labels. I can't handle anything but labels. Right. I always thought that was indicative of the common of, of the current climate. Um yeah, but so, but but I don't. But again, I do think that we are moral agents. Mm. We are always choosing good or evil, prudence or imprudence. Always, right now, you and me, everyone watching this should either be doing something else or doing this, right? Like that's it. Like the, everyone's got to be doing something correctly or incorrectly to varying degrees of correctness or incorrectness. So the idea that educating people to be successful adults will be free of morals is ludicrous, right? That's that's just, I don't understand what a human being is or choice or free will or liberty or vice and virtue, right? Or pain and pleasure. These are basics. So I do think that sort of like, I want an amoral curriculum. Like that's not happening. That's not rational uh, because we're not amoral beings. If we were, then there'd be some hope of that. Um, but again, you know, what does that take shape? I think when people hear that, they think of like some kind of, you know, uh, constrictive, horrified, sort of ethically locked down, you know, I don't know what sort of Salem witch trials meets, um, uh, you know, Nazi Germany meets, uh, you know, the, the Spanish Inquisition, right? Some kind of weird you know, repressive regime in education. The liberal arts, the arts of liberty, classical education, logic, grammar, stories of goodness and bad, fairy tale, imagination, rhetoric, the art of persuasion, the primacy of right over might, the preference for peace, uh, the art of friendship, the rule of law, like these are moral things, but they're quite freeing there's a lot of open interpretation in them. Um, but so, but, you know, I think there are adept ways to do this and less adept ways, but I think you have to, you have to accede to the principle that whatever we do is going to have to have a moral core to it of some sort. And ignoring that is like I said before, why 
like the center has been filled with something completely alien to the American tradition. Uh, and I think to human happiness and flourishing, it's, it's utterly bonkers in part because everyone, everyone was willing to say, great. I don't want to make decisions about morality and people who wanted to slide these ideologies in were like, great. I'm willing to lie about this, not being moral and not having a, so the combination of that handshake led to a disaster, which we're now starting to unravel now, I hope. Mm. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, generally speaking, there's just been an abdication of, um, dare I say it, moral responsibility, um, both in training the next generation as well as just kind of um, participation in civic life. And um, I think a lot of what we're talking about when we talk about whether education is political are just the preconditions for self-rule, right? Um, the whole point of a liberal education was to teach people how to be self-governing and to get a self truly self-governing population. And I think the issue before us is if, if people's, um, if the liberal education has been degraded so much and people's understanding of self-rule, self-rule and their role in society has receded so far is there even still a possibility for genuine self-government um i think that's a i think that's a something that we have to probably be contending with and what that means for our way of life and our system of government uh, a lot of people are trying to figure that out right now but uh, i feel like there's th there's a way in which the classical education and the values attendant therein need to be reinvigorated in a way that's not anachronistic, right? When I tell people that you should be reading old books, it's not just because these books are old. <laughs> it, it's because there's value in them and there's something in there that it's just hard to find these days. Um, that's why, I mean, that's why I was very glad. And thank you again for your kind remarks about me and mammals. I wanted to write a new book that mm -hmm. does this good work because I was tired of everyone saying, oh, that's just old. And therefore, right. it's good or bad. Like, how about right. something new that's also doing this work, right? Like, like I, I wanted to do that, right? Like, and I think it doesn't actually matter its age. Uh, it just we keep the ones that are really good. You know, maybe mine lasts, maybe it doesn't. Whatever. I hope it does. But, but you know, I'm no Homer. But, but, but the the we keep the great ones. Uh, we keep the great ones because they're so productive of human flourishing. Like that's what they're for. Like the training, the training of prudence, right? Uh, the ability to make a judgment. The part of that is like, why would we train? Uh, why would we uh, teach people drawing, proportion, beauty? Like, why would you? Why should you learn classical drawing, which is a part of classical education, right? Like actually using a sketchbook and understanding how shadow and proportion work, and 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 you know where the focal points should be on a square and on a rectangle you know horizon lines all of those kinds of things why well one it's beautiful and we're meant for beauty so it's fitting to us but two the the training in beauty is the, the power of man is analogous like we can draw an analogy between uh, i see someone say something on the street and it strikes me as inappropriate and ill-fitting to the moment. And part of the judgment of like, that guy's maybe not as practically wise and prudent as he should be. And I'm not going to follow him today. The, part of that is the judgment of being trained according to beauty. Because fittingness, the appropriate, is part of how we actually judge prudential acts. Whether or not they're truly wise to do. And whether what and what their social ramifications will have. The, what I'm talking about is so foreign to most everybody's discourse today, but it was it's literally the argument of the first book of one of the most read, studied, copied, memorized, printed. It was the second book off the Gutenberg printing press after the Bible, the most copied book of the Middle Ages. It's called Cicero's On Duties. Uh, it was the, the foundation for the Columbian Order, which Frederick Douglass read. 
as a slave and realized he could free himself through education, right? Like it's a these kinds of arguments about what a classical education and a liberal arts education will do for your ability to choose wisely and well good things for you and others, right? Self-government. Uh, there's a whole, there's a great tradition in this, uh, which I think we almost lost. I think we didn't lose it. And I think mm. that the the cat's out of the bag. The fire is lit. I don't think they can put the genie back in the bottle. I'm sure there. Are, I can go to a fourth metaphor, but the rule of threes is too rich, so I'll hold there. The, they're not going to stop what's popped. It's happening, right? Like it. It's happening. People get it. Ah, there's this whole way of educating. I mean, Hillsdale. We. I was just at the groundbreaking this weekend. On the home campus, we just opened a master's uh, of arts in classical education. We started a pilot class this semester. We're br breaking ground on a huge, built, beautiful building right on the quad on the home campus in Hillsdale, Michigan. Right. University of Dallas just started one. Uh, all these different groups like Searcy and the ICLE and, and the classical learning test was in the New York Times. Jeremy Tate's a good friend of mine. I was at his gala. I've been an early supporter of that the classical ed and liberal arts is just on the march and on the move. It's taking over all these these uh, um, private schools. Parochial schools are switching to them. You've got all the charter schools and all. Now that the money's following all these the public school students to whatever charter they choose and private school, mm -hmm. even it's going to explode. Um, and frankly, the only thing stopping it, I can tell you, is the teachers aren't trained enough, and that's why we're desperate to try to train more teachers. So I think it's we almost lost it, but we won't. Uh, and that I, I consider to be a, a a great and mighty benefice of pro providence that it wasn't actually snuffed out because it could be. Yeah, North and, Africa and, lost the tradition. You know, and and a testament too. to 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 its power, right? That uh, people are still willing to um, uh, to defend it so so vociferously. Um, so. I mean, you you are. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Hillsdale and the School of Government um, that you're at on the DC campus, as well as um, the Michigan campus. I know a, a very good number of Hillsdale alumni at this point, um, even though I did not attend myself. Uh, I wanted to ask you because you are involved with the the graduate school there in um, in the capital. What is the value of um, of this form of education in terms of training leaders, right? Because it really is a kind of leadership school. And I think when people hear that term leadership, it's sort of an amorphous term. It has a sort of like weird LinkedInification of it these days where a leader is just like yeah. somebody at a corporation or something like that who gets the team to get the job done. But the way in which- well, it, has a, it has a feeling- it has a feeling of the Pied Piper too, of just sort of like following, you know, sort of sending a herd here, hither and thither, right? Sort of just all over, right? Right, Leading right, where? right. What you, what's your activity? Yeah, leadership to what ends? It's unclear. Um, so I wanted to ask you, like, how do you think about um, the training of of the next generation of leaders uh, in the program, and what is the value, for lack of a better term? of um of spending some time studying these texts and getting familiar with it within a group and with with other individuals like yourself who spent a long time um examining them and thinking about them um how is that preparing people to take on leadership in this deeper sense that's not sort of some you know trivial um position yeah, so it's for us. It's a master's uh, in government, but and, but the Latin's actually uh, it's a master's of arts in uh, gubernanda republicae, the governing of a republic. Mm -hmm. So it's an art, not a science. It's not political science. It's an actual art. That is to say, you have to get the hang of it. It's a praxis, right? Uh, it's not just a series of theoretical principles. It's actually a kind of doing, a being at work, if you want to use the Aristotelian fancy pantsery. Um, and the degree is actually, in, 
to put it somewhat glibly, but I don't think uh, obscurely uh, or obscuringly. Um, it's designed to give the kind of education that the found fathers had one of one of actual liberal arts humanities political theory law judgment history experience uh art uh that 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 refines the judgment to such a degree that you could actually hit the mark in making laws and governing institutions both ethically prudently and effectively um the the to repeat myself because i think all three are one <laughs> at the end of the day but but um uh one of the interesting features of the program uh to kind of which is i like to highlight um generally because it's up my alley uh, and i helped design the curriculum and it was a great honor that dr arn and dr spalding uh right allowed my counsels into the into the mix um but one of the neat parts of the 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 program is that it doesn't just do political theory it actually teaches political thought and literature courses that merge political theory and literature together uh, on the on the grounds that the principles of politics are one thing but how they're practiced the way in which they're implemented is another and examples of tragic and comic impl uh, implementation of principle or instantiation of principle is frankly what the poets do, right? Creon versus Antigone. We teach Sophocles and Antigone. That's a powerful um, example. People having many of the right principles, but not assembling them correctly and then implementing them in the wrong modes, too harshly, too hastily, too finally, uh, too slowly, right? All of the all of the sort of warp and woof of politics, which are usually ignored in these programs. It's just here, here are the various principles. Now go. Well, that's half half of it is how do you do the thing? So we we interweave these sorts of things. We also, it's not just about judgment, it's also about actual arts. One of the guiding the, the crown of the liberal arts, which no one talks about anymore, that the literally the the queen of the liberal arts is rhetoric, oratory, the art of persuasion to the truth through speech, right? Mm -hmm. How do you lead others peacefully and not just menace them in fear, which devolves into lack of trust and tyranny, right? How do you do that? If you don't know the arts of rhetoric and persuasion, if you don't know how to use speech and image to move people, right, to the truth, to just action, or away from unjust actions, right? To quell the mob, if you will. If you don't know how to do that, and you don't know all of the available means of persuasion, then you're going to be severely limited in your ability to, to govern. Because you're like, well, I, there's nothing we can do here. So just give up, capitulate, or here are two other terrible, dumb options that are nowhere near as civilized and successful. So uh, we have a number of aspects of the program that are sort of interwoven that that shape judgment in this kind of uh more classical um you know uh, i think more sapiential and prudential way than the sort of expertism of political science um or um or specialization of uh something uh less dri less driving towards um governing prudence hmm. Yeah, that's an excellent answer. And uh, I hope that gives people a little bit of an idea of, of what we mean by um, by both leadership as well as the the value of classical education uh, more broadly. Mr. Mian, uh, thank you so much for your time. Before we go, I just wanted to ask um, or give you the opportunity rather to um, let us know if there's anything that uh, you're working on at the moment that we might you know want to look forward to, another book. Um, or some other project that you're excited about? I'm currently working on a dialogue um, between uh, a young man and an old man, <laughs> basically about how to navigate uh, growing up uh, and being a responsible American uh, father. Because um, there's it's actually a very complicated matter uh, to do well, I think. Um, 
it's going to take up all kinds of different very interesting issues but it, it's not written yet so i don't want it to over oversell its thematic excellence and importance yet but i'm excited about that so you can look for that in about a year i'm also working on um a new children's book uh i don't want to give too much away but uh it's a little more of a juvenile fiction um and it's about a particularly colorful character that has to struggle with wrath. Uh, hmm. Mian's mammals, the, the overarching theme was dealing with sadness through zeal and friendship. And the handsome little signet's overarching theme was dealing with threats to one's identity by understanding one's nature and the nature of those who love you best and most. Uh, and this one's going to have to do deal with the rightful recognition of injustice and basically the tempering of one's anger so that you, you actually use that anger productively as opposed to destructively. So wow. I'm very excited about that one too. Oh, me too. Um, well, so those are some excellent virtues to instill into the young and uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to that as well as your other dialogue. Um, Thank you so much, Mr. Mian. I appreciated uh, your time and thank you for coming on. And um, that's all we have for today, folks. Thank you.